yeah, I think we can start this whole thing off if you want to give a little bit about yourself, even though people listening to this probably know who you are already. But if for the people that don't, if you'd like to give a little bit about yourself, what your work is and how you came to be uh, Dr. Bill Richards in, in this position right now, then uh, and then, yeah, we can get the ball rolling. Okay. Am I right that this isn't live right now? We're no, this isn't live. This is just recorded. Okay. <clears throat> Good. Uh, well, it's great being with you. You know, I, I enjoy these uh, adventures and who knows where all we'll travel in our thoughts and our, our experiences in the time ahead. Uh, uh, let's make the most of it. How do I come to be here? Um, I was once upon a time 23 years old in a uh, studying in a graduate school in Göttingen, Germany. And I uh, volunteered to test a, a new drug, uh, something called psilocybin I had never heard of. Uh, but it was supposed to give you memories from early childhood. And I thought that sounded interesting. I was studying my dreams at the time and viewed my head as kind of a laboratory. Uh, so uh, why not? And I volunteered and uh, those were in the dark ages before set and setting was recognized. And I was led to a little basement room with a cot and an end table and a little narrow window looking out over the hospital garbage cans and uh, given an injection of psilocybin and left alone. <laughs> <laughs> Not what we would do these days, you know. <laughs> but by some minor miracle, uh, uh, a very uh, incredibly meaningful so-called spiritual state of consciousness opened up. And in many ways, uh, the rest of my life has been a footnote uh, to that experience. And so I went on to study uh, more theology and comparative religions and psychology of religion and became a clinical psychologist. Uh, and um, then was able to do a decade of psychedelic research uh, at the Maryland Psychiatric Research Center at Spring Grove in uh, Baltimore. Uh, working with LSD and uh, DPT, dipropyl tryptamine, primarily a little psilocybin, but basically in the treatment of alcoholism and narcotic addiction and working with uh, terminal, terminal cancer patients. Um, and also in the training of mental health and religious professionals. Uh, just we provided a legal training experience for people who wanted to explore their own minds. All FDA approved in those days. And then um, the deep freeze came. Uh, I think I was the last one in the United States to be able to legally give psilocybin to a, uh, a patient, a cancer patient in this case. That was in 1977. And then uh, the work became dormant until uh, Roland Griffiths and I were able to begin 
research at Johns Hopkins in 1999, other than uh, Rick Strassman did some work with dimethyltryptamine in the early 90s. Uh, but um, we've been going strong at Hopkins now for 20 years, and um, we have a center for uh, the study of uh, psychedelic and consciousness research. Uh, well-funded and well-staffed and growing very rapidly. And um, there are other centers, as you know, throughout the world that are uh, on the vanguard of this frontier of knowledge and treatment. And it's a very hopeful time. It is. It is. Thanks to your work and, and people like you that are paving the way, honestly. Well, I, I, it's been hard work, but it's been an awful lot of fun. And it's beautiful, incredibly rewarding work to, to be with another human being when those depths of consciousness are being discovered and experienced and shared. It's mm. really a, a very sacred uh, calling, if you will, to be a psychedelic therapist these days. Did you feel that calling when you first were administered psilocybin intravenously? Um, actually, it wasn't intravenous. It was intramuscular. Oh. <laughs> Whatever that matters. Yeah, I, don't, uh, I didn't even know there was a difference. Yeah, it was in, in, in uh, uh, liquid form in those days, just a uh, uh, short injection in your rear and away you went. You know? <laughs> was it instantaneous? Not instantaneous, but more rapid than when it's uh, taken orally mm -hmm. and uh, be digested uh, through the, the stomach. But uh, what's a few minutes either way? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So do you, from these, what I like about your, um, your idea of the psychedelic experience is it's not necessarily it's the molecule and it's not necessarily the substance that is responsible for people you know coming to these insights and changing their ways and realizing a whole mystical union or you know all of these different insights they come to it's more so of the um the experience right it's more so of the set and setting rather than the actual uh molecule itself uh do you think you can expand upon that a little bit because i think that's where it currently we're kind of lost in translation where you know people think it's all it's all just about the psychedelics substances when i i also hold the opinion i'm like no it's it's more about the substances with the experience yeah no it's not a uh, quote drug experience you know mm -hmm. but the psychedelic drug, substance, medicine, whatever you want to call it. Uh, what that does is basically unlock the door to these other states of consciousness. It provides an opportunity. And I don't think it does much more than that. And you can, depending on who you are and your preparation, you can uh, ignore the opportunity, run away from it, uh, try to manipulate it and control it, or you can move 
into those realms with a sense of courage and trust. And uh, what I believe is very important is uh, interpersonal groundedness, being with someone you can unconditionally trust, you know? Mm -hmm. And uh, when the conditions are right with set and setting and dosage and purity of substance and so on, um, the realms that open up are usually uh, profoundly therapeutic, uh, revelatory, if you want to use religious language. Um, they may be painful at times. Uh, they may take you through unresolved grief and guilt and um, traumatic experiences in life. Uh, it's not all fun, you know, mm -hmm. but in and through all those experiences, many people arrive at a place where um, they discover that they are more or, or are connected to more than they ever dreamt was possible. And that there are very positive healing uh, resources within us. Mm. Some people talk about it in religious language, some in philosophical language, some in scientific language, you know. Yeah. But there's something deep within us or high within us <laughs> mm -hmm. that's uh, supremely meaningful and beautiful and healing. Mm -hmm. And as we're getting coming to understand it and integrate it into medicine now, as well as eventually education and religion, um, it constitutes a real threshold of uh, new knowledge and mental health. Uh, it could really, uh, in a way, give uh, the profession of psychiatry its soul back, mm. you know? Mm -hmm. There are many psychiatrists who uh, went into the field because they genuinely cared about people and were intrigued by the richness of the human mind and how it worked. And so many of those well-intentioned people are kind of locked into adjust, adjusting medication of SSRIs every 10, 15 minutes. Yeah. And it's not. That's a prescription for a lot of depressed psychiatrists. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and the psychedelics wisely used um, give access to the intelligence, the beauty, the, uh, I use the philosophical word intelliki, the meaningful unfolding of content within us. Mm -hmm. And the awareness that often the mind knows how to heal itself, you know, if you uh, give it the support it needs. Mm. So do you think that these um, experiences, is it the memory of the experience that people kind of hold in their heads that allows them to make the changes in their life that they need to, or maybe see life in a different light? Yeah. Uh, it's so it's it's because of is it because of like the mystical insights that they came to these d divine revelations or you know wherever they went during their trip 
that has allowed them to see life in a different light or those things that come over our our consciousness the you know the television screen of our consciousness as we're induced on under the substance is that just like a byproduct of it is it is it correlation or is it causation yeah um the way I see it, it is the memory of the experience and the perhaps lifelong process of integrating and applying those memories mm -hmm. uh, that is the healing process. Yeah. And that whole new concept in psychiatry, you know, that the memory of an experience is healing. You know, we know... Um, it, there's post-traumatic stress disorder where a negative experience can have mm. lifelong reverberations. Mm. But we're not used to thinking about a positive experience having yeah. life reverberations. I feel like there needs to be a term for that, right? Like the opposite of PTSD. Yeah, that's right. Uh, if you take a typical addict for example, alcoholic or narcotic addict or cocaine addict, you know, who perhaps has a history of uh, struggles and, you know, succeeding and failing over and over and trying to get control over the addiction, uh, has maybe lost several jobs, has had uh, relationships collapse, you know, is estranged from children, et cetera, et cetera, you know? Mm -hmm. That person has all kinds of self-doubts, feelings of failure, uh, embarrassment, you know, uh, feeling of hopelessness, you know? Okay, if you can help that person have or encounter or be had by, if you will, a transcendental form of consciousness, which includes a sense of intrinsic self-worth, of inner resources. You know, the, the higher power of AA isn't an abstract concept. It's something that's directly known. Okay? Mm -hmm. uh, you, when the, you emerge from that experience, which may happen in just a, a few minutes or even seconds of a six-hour psilocybin session in one afternoon. And that memory is vividly within you. It feels more real than this world of consciousness that we're in right now. Mm -hmm. There's something completely self-validating about it. You know, intellectually, we can say, well, maybe it's a big delusion, you know, but it's mighty convincing yes. when you're in it. Okay. <laughs> mm -hmm. All right. Uh, when you have that in your memory, you can't view yourself as worthless anymore. Mm. You know? I know. Yeah. Well, when you connect to that, like the divinity inside of you, like that kind of like that right. essence. You, you know, you are loved. Mm hmm. You, you know that you're capable of getting control over the addiction. And you have perhaps a new appreciation for your body. What a wonderful thing a body is. Why would I poison it? You know? Mm -hmm. You know? Yes, yeah, the temple. 
And so there's a whole new concept of who you are and who other people are and what the nature of reality is. And so people will say, well, of course I can get control over my addiction. You know? What's mm. the big deal? Yeah. But the memory of that experience that's doing it, it's not just the chemical reaction, you know? Yeah. Or a drug you have to keep taking like Prozac, you know? Yeah, that's not sustainable. Yeah. Hmm. Now, I sometimes wonder if we could take people to Bali for a week. (laughs) (laughs) I'm a a Hindu mountain and uh, go swimming in the beautiful warm water and meet all the artists. Maybe that would be transformative too, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it'd be a lot more fun. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's quite amazing what can happen just lying on your back with an eye sheet and uh, some headphones and being open and exploring your your own consciousness, you know. Yeah, yeah. It seems almost deliberate by this these these substances that are grown on the ground that are here naturally. I'm talking about psilocybin mushrooms. There, yeah. There's no synthesization. There's no equipment needed. It's there's literally something you grow on the ground. You eat it and you feel this divine connection, just insights and it just seems like it's meant to be. It seems like it's nature's messenger. That somehow it's the earth's chemical messenger to us. Um, it seems too good to be true. And especially when you're on it, it seems too good to be true, right? Because we can describe it all we want, but then until you actually induce, you know, induce yourself under high amounts of psilocybin or whatever the substance is, then you kind of know what that feeling is. Because before, um, before I was uh, introduced to psilocybin, I didn't really have, I was like a staunch atheist. I didn't really believe. I was kind of like rationale, one plus one equals two, all material world type stuff. And I, I kind of saw um, all religions is just like, it just doesn't make any sense. Like, why are people doing these weird rituals? And it, it just didn't make any sense to me. And then I started to gradually get into meditation and yoga. And then I was introduced into psilocybin. And I, by myself one night, decided to take a, uh, it was like a four to five gram dose of mushrooms. and laid in my bed and had this crazy revelatory religious experience. And all I did from the outside perspective was lay in my bed. And <laughs> it, it, it looks it looks like nothing special, but on the inside, it is so glorious to the person that it, if you're in the right circumstances, it it's, could be this like life-changing event, like you described. It's, it's really insane. And I don't know how back you know, in, when you were just, when psilocybin was first being coming onto the scene, how, when people took this, you might, you must've had the realization, like, like, how are people not talking about this more? Because I know that's what I said. The first time I had the experience, I was like, how is this not in the limelight more? How is not every single human being being exposed to this? Like it is coming out slowly now, thanks to work by, you know, you guys at John Hopkins and just the, the internet and podcasts like this, but it's a slow process. Like you would think, you would think that it would be a lot quicker process to, to, to have, we have this substance that grows naturally that will allow us to communicate with uh, the divine. And I know that sounds crazy, but I think it's actually like true. <laughs> it's this, it's this natural organic substance that allows us to see beyond ourselves. And yet we're kind of just like, Oh, whatever. It's just drugs. 
doesn't make any sense. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, we we have a lot of educating to to do, Gary. Uh, yeah. The uh, the the framework of understanding of most people, even many very well educated people uh, professionally, you know, uh, just see it as a, a drug effect, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's so much more than that. There are a few things in life where when you get into it and that you, where you really discover more than you thought was possible, you know? And, and that happens often in therapy with psychedelics, you know? And it's not, they're not for everyone, you know? There are many roads up the mountain. Yeah. For those for whom psychedelics are reasonably safe, um, if you learn to use them wisely, uh, they can be incredibly beneficial, you know? But uh, as you know, in my book, I, I refer to it uh, like, like learning downhill skiing, you know? Mm -hmm. If you just jump on a pair of skis without any instruction and dive downhill, chances are pretty good you might uh, injure yourself or someone else or crash into a tree, you know? Yeah. Yep. It's kind of a stupid thing to do, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so if you're going to do downhill skiing, uh, you, you get some lessons first, yes. you know? Maybe you start on a small slope. You don't start on a black double diamond, you know? Exactly. You know? Uh, and I think the same thing is true with psychedelics. You have to prepare, you have to know what you're doing. And you have to know if, 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 if it's likely to be helpful to you or if it's, you ought to find different roads up to spiritual mountain, you know? Mm -hmm. um, but- um, How would you say one knows that the psychedelic is, the, is something for them? Well, uh, right now in the research world, uh, we screen out um, people who have histories of psychosis, you know, being schizophrenic or um, um, bipolar illness or um, people with brain tumors, uh, um, people with acute heart conditions or kidney uh, conditions that have trouble metabolizing substances. You know, and it's not because we know that it wouldn't be helpful to these people. The research really hasn't been done, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but we know that there's a much higher degree of risk mm -hmm. that the person might have, uh, that the alternative states of consciousness might not stop at six hours, but continue. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Maybe for a few days, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and uh, it might be, for some of those people, if it can be beneficial, they might need much more preparation and more skilled guidance and maybe even a, a safe place to live for a couple uh, weeks or months afterwards, you know, mm -hmm. to, to assimilate it. Yeah. So, and also in the research world, you're working with 
small samples of people and you want them to all be as much alike as possible, you know, mm-hmm. and you want, you need FDA approval and institutional review board approval. And so you don't want to take a lot of risks and you don't want an adverse reaction to happen that then you have to report to the institutional review board and the FDA and it might put your research on hold, you know? Yeah. So, so we're very conservative in who we admit into these studies right now for mm-hmm. treatment, addiction or depression or, or whatever, post-traumatic stress. Um, but there's a, an awful lot we don't know, you know? Yeah. The, to go back to the skiing analogy, uh, we don't make skiing illegal because mm-hmm. some people crash into trees. Mm-hmm. If you crash into a tree, we say that was a stupid thing to have done. You should have gotten some instruction. Yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. You know? And you could argue the same is true of psychedelics, you know? Don't just throw it in your mouth for the hell of it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you yeah. know, if you're interested in exploring it, read up about it, consult, and maybe find a safe and legal way to do it, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, in the coming years, it's going to be more and more of a thing, the legality of it, you know, the, the people having access and having not only access to the substance, but access to the the you know the whole experience that you guys are essentially creating uh, can you actually run us through uh, really quick like what the experience is like for like a psilocybin session uh, well you know the usually we spend at least four hours uh, in the past as much as eight uh, kind of developing a relationship with the person we're going to give a psychedelic to mm-hmm. so the sense of safety and openness and uh, you can choose to be totally uh, vulnerable and out of control and know you're respected and you're safe, you know? Then when that's in place, in the research world, we typically uh, give psilocybin orally usually, uh, a little blue pill, in a, in a comfortable living room type of setting that provides uh, confidentiality and uh, a good music system and uh, some nice art on the wall and uh, uh, one or two people you can really trust that you know who, who are there for you, you know? Mm-hmm. Strangers coming into the room, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. You know? Mm-hmm. And you have your psilocybin experience. And if you're a good research volunteer, as everyone is, you even put up with filling out some silly questionnaires at the end of the day <laughs> <laughs> that other people might have this experience in the future, you know? Yeah. And contribute to science. <laughs> and then comes this phase of initial integration, you know, where you have a few sessions to take these new insights, whatever they are, and relate them as fully as you can to where you are in life, you know, who you are. And that's in line with classic spirituality. You know, you, you go up to the top of the mountain and you have your vision 
And then you come back into the marketplace and you chop wood and carry water. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, uh, Houston Smith, uh, beloved friend of mine, uh, always talked about the difference between religious experiences and religious lives, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's not just having the experience, it's applying it, integrating it, living out of it, you know? Yeah. Yeah, that's—it's easy to love all mankind, but try to get along with your boss and your, <laughs> your <Yeah>. spouse. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <take> more work. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's true. Do you think it only takes like maybe, uh, we'll say, one session to to get what some? I, I don't know if you want to say get what you need from it, but kind of yeah. reach the, those insights, like one or two sessions that somebody may need. Yeah. Well. Um, let me back up a little and just uh, state what's obvious to you, but not to all your listeners, perhaps. And that is that there is no such thing as the psychedelic experience. But there are many different states of consciousness that we can access with psychedelics or with meditative techniques or sensory isolation or sensory overload or natural childbirth or you name it. There are yeah. many ways of accessing these inner worlds. Psychedelics are great because they're so uh, reliable and potent and effective. We can say on this Saturday afternoon, something significant is gonna happen in a few hours. Mm -hmm. And it's hard to do that with meditative techniques. You know. Yeah. Even you can get into the full lotus. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's funny. Um, so what do we find when we go in? Well, that depends on set and setting, where you are in life, the dosage, the purity, the nature of the substance. You know, there's a lot of variables. But generally, like there's this realm of perceptual changes you know, which many people uh, think of when they hear psychedelic, the kind of geometric designs, uh, the tie-dye t-shirt effect, you know? Mm -hmm. yep. And that can be fascinating, can be delightful. Um, if that's all that happens, it usually isn't very life transforming, you know? Yeah. Maybe if you're of an artistic temperament, yeah. It might influence your art productions a little bit, you know? Yeah. But if you go a little deeper and you can begin to interact with the geometric designs, so you become almost like an atom moving through a wire within the design. Mm -hmm. You become the design. You go through the design into other states of consciousness, okay? Then we're getting somewhere. Okay. If, if you're just looking at it and giggling and saying that's cool, you're not getting very deep. Yeah. And there are, let's acknowledge, there are mm. people who have dropped acid 200 times and not gone beyond that point, you know? Mm. Yeah. Firstly, there are people who have never taken psychedelics, who have had profound unexpected spontaneous spiritual experiences you know? yeah exactly so what's important is the experience not how you get there you know mm -hmm. okay 
Then to go a little deeper, then there's this realm of psychological material. You know, our grief, our guilt, our inner conflicts, our childhood traumas, um, all this stuff that, that makes up ordinary psychotherapy, you know? Yeah. And many people feel that just navigating in that world can rapidly accelerate psychotherapy, you know? Like, instead of just talking about it, you can relive it and you can experience resolution, you know? You can see a uh, frightening monster of some kind. And if you're prepared and go towards it, instead of running away from it, and say you see it transform into your father when he was drunk in the middle of the night, you know? Mm -hmm. And there's insight and there's understanding and there's forgiveness and there's catharsis and you get rid of the fear that you've been living with. Mm. It's that principle of in and through, in and through, nothing to avoid. Yeah. Or like going down in the basement of your life, if you will, with a big searchlight, trying to shine it in the darkest corners you can find. Like if there's anything down here that's causing my depression, I wanna see what it is. Mm. Okay? Mm -hmm. This is my mind, after all. I have a right to know. <laughs> so, you know, if there's anything lurking down here, show yourself, you know? <laughs> you know? Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, in the ayahuasca religions, there's this wonderful uh, principle. What do you do if you see the big anaconda serpent? You know, you know the answer? You, know? you go right into it, right? Yeah, you dive into its mouth and look out through its eyes. <laughs> so you become the serpent in a way? You become the anaconda. The anaconda becomes your Shakti, your Kundalini. Oh, yeah. You're, mm. It's magnificent to be an anaconda. Yeah? Yeah. You know, but if you run from it, what happens? The, you have a nightmare. It gets oh, yeah. bigger, you get smaller, you wake up in a cold sweat. Mm. What's happening there is you're running away from an opportunity for discovery and resolution, but you're not ready for it, you know? Yeah. You're not grounded in a relationship where you can go towards it, you know? Mm -hmm. Okay, so there's this whole psychodynamic realm. Then if you will, beyond that, there's this symbolic uh, visionary world that Carl Jung called the collective unconscious. This world of gods and goddesses and precious stones and ancient civilizations and absolutely incredible, vividly detailed, colorful mental imagery. Where does that come from? Do you know? I don't know. No, do you no know? I don't either. <laughs> <laughs> Somewhere. Yeah. Somewhere. <laughs> Is it genetically encoded in us somehow? Is it uh, spiritually accessed, whatever that means, you know? Yeah. We know that people reliably encounter that realm. And there's the vision of the Buddha, the, the vision of the Christ, 
uh, the vision of uh, Quan Yin or the Virgin Mary, uh, onward, 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 old Aztec religion, uh, you name it, you know? Yeah. And people have these experiences reliably and they're just amazed by them. Like, where did that come from? I never learned that in Sunday school. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, mm -hmm. it's not part of my enculturation. Mm -hmm. mm. And yeah. I think it's really, we have empirical validation, I think, of uh, Jung's collective unconscious that within us, there really are experiences that don't arise in our childhoods, in our development, you know, mm. uh, that we are more than we know of ourselves. You know? Yeah. It seems to be we have some kind of imprint on our DNA. I've heard yeah. that from a lot of people as well, but I don't, I mean, how do you prove that? How do you go about having an experiment with that? I don't know. I don't know. All <laughs> we know is it, it gets reported over and over and over. And then if you will, beyond that, if you want to think of it as distance, are these transcendental unitive states of consciousness? What in Hinduism is described as the uh, drop of water of the Atman merging with the ocean of Brahman, you know, or the Protestant theologian Paul Tillich called it the ground of being, okay? And this, these profound, uh, incredibly uh, beautiful unitive experiences where it's very hard to put them into language, as you know. So you, you can't even say I experienced it because in a sense, you weren't even there. You yeah. died into it, you melted into it, you were engulfed by it. But when you come back, you discover that it's in your memory. Yeah. And you can honor it, you can bear witness to it. But um, there's this line in the Taoist scriptures, the Tao Te Ching, uh, those who know do not speak, those who speak do not know, you know? <laughs> and when you try to put it into language, you keep contradicting yourself, you know? Yeah. I died, but I've never been so alive, you know? Yeah. Uh, God was uh, one, but he contained everything that is. Yeah, it's just it paradoxes. And it was nothing and it was everything. Okay. Yeah. That scholars of psychology of religion call it paradoxicality, mm. the academic world word, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but um, it's it's a state of consciousness that feels more real than the one we're in right now. Yeah, it feels familiar. It's like something we've lost, and it's like we regain that. It's like it's like People something it, uh, is waking up, awakening, homecoming. Um, the amazing thing is that as people go deeper and deeper into the mind, it doesn't get more and more weird and surreal, but it starts to feel more and more welcoming, and. Uh, um, it's like, like, like I've been here before and I forgot it. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Which is reaffirming to me in my, in my yeah. being, uh, that feels good to know that there is, 
in this crazy conundrum that we find ourselves in, it's not really the truth per se. It's there's there's yeah. something else on the other side. Yeah, and so we express that in like he's got the whole world in his hands. You know that there, yeah. there's in spite of all the chaos of everyday living, that there's there is an eternal dimension within us where all is well. Yeah. 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 Pretty profound. Pretty profound. Exactly. It's something not that I could say. Well, I feel like I can understand that because you've understood that. So when I say that to you and you say that to me, you're like, yes, of course. Or you say that to somebody that hasn't experienced it. They, they were like, uh, well, yeah, I, I guess. But you don't know until you feel it. You got to feel it, man. <laughs> right? You have to, you yeah. really just something you just have to experience. And feeling, it's not just emotion. It's intuitive knowledge. Yeah. Uh, sacred knowledge. Sacred knowledge. That's why I called my book Sacred Knowledge. You know? It really is. Yeah. But we're not used to respecting intuitive knowledge. You know, intuition is a woman's hunch. <laughs> you know? It's not... Yeah not the platonic way of discovering truth you know yeah uh so it's a a whole way of discovering uh truth if you will that our culture has uh tended to devalue you know i mean we do trust it uh, do you love your wife do you love your kids you know why well i just do you know mm -hmm. It's kind of an intuitive uh, commitment, you know? Yeah. I give my life for my child without thinking twice, you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. But it's that type of thing, that, that knowledge, that certainty, you know, this is, I'll bet my life that this is true, you know? Yeah. I mean, it just comes down to love. That's pretty much what you were describing. This is the force of love and the, the actions that you take with the force of love is like, you know, that it's the right thing, right? It's the, there's something you described in the book. I don't know what you said word for word, but paraphrasing is this, is coming to this, this, you know, revelation about life and how, you know, at its core, at our core, at our deepest of deep, our highest of high is this somehow we're being propelled through time and through what's propelling us. It seems to be, this is this force of love and you can't really explain it any other way, you know, getting, it, it sounds hippie-ish, but like, <laughs> it makes sense, you know, when you experience it and you really feel what that, that love feels like that unconditional love. And there's no, it, there's really no other way to act after you know that that is uh, the way. Yeah. I'm fond of quoting uh, Dante Alighieri in, uh, at the end of the divine comedy where he says, quote, I think it's the very last line, it is love that moves the sun and other stars, you know? Mm. So I think he's writing out of his own mystical experiences. But that this love isn't just a mushy, sentimental uh, emotion. Yeah. It's an intelligent, creative energy, you know? Mm -hmm. God, you know consciousness infinite consciousness whatever t label you want to put on it i think that's the thing is like this is all different labels we can we can call it millions of different things but yeah it, it, as long as it just really comes down to you have to 
feel what that God is, what that love is, and to know. And once you know, you know. Once you open the door, you always know what's on the other side of the door, I like to say. And um, yeah, it's, 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 that's, it's really that simple. And I, it's wonderful the way you, people who have these experiences aren't limited by language. You know, uh, if you want to call it God, that's fine. If you don't like the word God, call it whatever you want. You know, yeah. mm -hmm. uh, Edmund Sinnott at Yale, the head of biology, called it the purposive properties of protoplasm. <laughs> <laughs> Can you say that again? The purposive properties of protoplasm okay so it sounds like the order just yeah okay i get it i get it <laughs> yeah, you, know, that was you, know, uh, you can call it the nothingness the void that contains all reality you know these are just words there's sounds in the air you know yeah yeah uh, but you know you get the mystics of the world religions together and they get along just fine together you know yeah because it's yeah. all the it's it's about it's not about um you know the story of the, the finger pointing in the moon it's not about people get lost at the at the yeah, finger pointing right. right and they don't look at the moon that's, that's right that's what it is, is words are only directions they're only symbols to really show us the way but right. you know you, it, the way is everybody's own way and then once you're on the way you have to walk the path in your own way uh, but it's 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 a subjective experience that we all come to. Well, not we all come to, but we all have the ability to come to. And uh, yeah, don't get lost in the symbols. It's, don't cling to symbols. Yeah, it's not only look pointing at the moon. It's pointing at the galaxies and nebulae out there. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And uh, yeah, I enjoy especially working with psychoanalysts who are have grown up being loyal to Freud or Jung, you know? And then they start looking where Freud or Jung were looking, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that seems just like another form of dogma, right? To Freud or Jung. Right. Just, just like any uh, fundamentalistic religion. Uh, uh, but to look in that direction and build on it and appreciate uh, not only verbal language but uh, the language of music and poetry and art you know mm. literally trying to express uh, these realms of experience you know? yeah that's true because i think music and literature and any kind of art movie uh, whatever it is that humans want to create i think there's certain there's a certain way to put that experience this transcendental experience that words cannot and only sometimes like a, sometimes you know there's certain paintings you could look at and be like they'll hit you in, in a certain way or yeah. some pieces of music that could just hit you in a certain way and it's just like touching on that that weird intuitive knowledge and I, I don't know if it's like touching on the same frequency that the artist was on when they were making it but there's some kind of uh connection that isn't really necessarily through like a informative approach of like reading a book or uh, just listening to a podcast or something is there's something special about art and really music like there's something really special about a beautiful piece of just music and i'm not talking about like a pop song a three-minute pop song like an actual 
a well-built piece of just like a symphony like there's just something special about that that touches upon our being at a level that we really can't even describe that's right yeah yeah people uh, with psilocybin will often say they they feel like they're entering into the mind of the composer mm. they're becoming the music <laughs> sense the music as a language communicating some ultimate uh truths about the structure of reality you know yeah uh, boy uh, that's one of the uh research projects waiting to be done is to provide psilocybin experiences for uh um composition students in music school oh wow you're gonna get some really good music after that yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh wow that's awesome yeah, why not? Why not? So this is the same exact sessions that you're administering now, administering now. You just have a different group of people and those people would be musicians. Sure. Hmm. That's interesting. Study, while we're at it, let's do a study with quantum physicists. Yeah, right. Why not? Exactly. Like just try. Yeah. Like there's so much to be learned on on these different types of brains or different ways that these that these substances can help these creators and, and yeah man that's great yeah i think you know right now we're focused on applying the psychedelics in medicine like just in yeah. palliative care in treatment of addictions treatment of depression and getting them off of schedule one so they can be prescribed in mainstream uh, mental health settings, and they can be covered by insurance, including Medicare. You know, mm -hmm. that's where we're focused right now. I think that's step one, and let's do that well. You know? Yeah, yeah, I understand. But yeah. but beyond that, there's their potential value in uh, the training, the education of people, notably mental health professionals and religious professionals. Why shouldn't a theological student maybe have some revelatory experience as well as studying Greek and Hebrew to decipher the scriptures, mm -hmm. Sanskrit or whatever? Mm -hmm. why, why not? Why shouldn't a philosopher studying Pl Plato experience something akin to what Plato experienced? Yeah when he wrote his um, uh, wonderful stories back there, you know? Yeah, I know what you mean. Because they, sh I mean, I would want to, if yeah. I was in that. I mean, it, I, because it's just like, uh, you know, Timothy Leary said he learned, I think he said he learned more about the mind in his, uh, for his first, mushroom trip than he did uh his whole all of his years of schooling so it kind of yeah. plays in part with, like with the people that you just said you know it's uh it's just so much that can be dove into and the things that we can unlock in our mind and it's just unfortunate that you know we live in a we're currently still living in the remnants of the drug war <laughs> it's uh you i think you said this in the book where you know people are going to look back on this and, and historians are going to just be like wow it was just craziness like how can these things that are organic be
be kept from the people. And it really, I say this, this is a saying of mine, it's a crime against humanity that these things are illegal to everybody. Like it, it legitimately is, I, I, even though like most the popular opinion of it is like it's drugs, you know, people could be doing stupid stuff on them, but like it, the cat's out of the bag, man. Like it's, you, we can't keep, like, there's literally lives that are being lost due to yeah. mental health and not even just like literal lives of it's like actual people not living to their fullest extent because they you know have some kind of ailment or they just need that that oomph to like see the greater the bigger picture and right now that's not really possible unless you know you want to do, conduct some illegal activities <laughs> but you know that's that's not the ideal approach yeah uh, i'm I, I couldn't agree with you more, and, and yet I feel a, a little caution uh, in that these drugs have been around, well, we know at least since 5500 BC, you know, mm -hmm. and maybe since the dawn of man. Yeah. And over and over, they have emerged in societies and then they've been suppressed, you know, and they emerge and kind of like mushrooms. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> they there come they go. are, and then they're gone again, you know? Yeah. And they're just <laughs> emerging in our Western technological society. And uh, we got to be smarter than we were back in the 1960s, you know? Mm, yeah, um, like less sensationalistic. Yeah, we don't need the sensationalism from either side, you know? Yeah. Uh, we need good, solid education, good, well-designed research studies, respectful dialogues with the FDA and the equivalent of the FDA in other countries. Mm -hmm. uh, um, we don't want to harm people, but if this can really be helpful to many people, let's figure out which ones and how to go about it safely, mm -hmm. how to train people to educate and guide people safely, you know? Yeah. And then we've got a revolution in mental health care and maybe in uh, the exploration of the mystery that we are. Yeah. Yes, that's the biggest thing because nobody knows. Here to be on, pretty exciting, you know? Wait, say that again? I didn't hear what you said. Pretty exciting to be on that frontier. You oh know? yeah definitely there's i don't think there's any more honorable you know path uh, honestly like it's just such a like this is something that the world really needs right now <laughs> in the coming years I, I i teach at the uh california institute of integral studies in based in san francisco cias which mm -hmm. has a program for training psychedelic researchers and therapists Right now, it's a nine-month certificate program. Mm -hmm. But the app, the people applying to that program, I mean, there's 450 trying to get in for next year, and we can only accept half of them. Oh. But they are such impressive human beings. I can imagine. Ones I've interviewed, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean... These aren't whacked out hippies. <laughs> These are people with a uh, hundred publications and good relations with the FDA, you know, and and uh, people who have uh, 
supported uh, schools in Tibet and lived in, in with indigenous communities in South America, et cetera, et cetera. And they want to have the cultural approval to do research on this frontier. Mm. They feel called to it. They're excited about it, you know? Yeah. And why not? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's amazing. Do you think that like uh, the sensationalism of the 60s kind of almost led by the, you know, the turn turn on, tune in, drop out from uh, Timothy Leary was kind of a setback in a way, kind of like made people shoo away the idea of using psychedelics responsibly? Yeah, well, it came, I don't think we weren't prepared for it then. Mm -hmm. Not even Timothy, in spite of his best intentions, you know? How well did you know him? Pardon? How well did you know him? Well, I knew him pretty well. Uh, I met him after he was fired from Harvard. Mm -hmm. for, for a couple of years, I would go out to Millbrook, New York on weekends. And oh, yeah? Very fine seminars there, uh, very respectable people. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and uh, Timothy was very uh, uh, supportive of me, I would say, uh, kind, uh, respectful. Um, I wish he hadn't given up on being a good scientist, you know? Yeah, yeah. But I can also kind of understand him doing that. Yeah, in, I think it needed to be done. In, I understand. You know, in the climate of his day. Yeah. What's different now is that, you know, the old uh, scare messages from the 60s, uh, some of which were even in government pamphlets, you know, sort of implying psychedelics are going to make you jump off skyscrapers and have deformed babies and so on. You know, um, we know that that's not true. Yeah. And it just doesn't carry weight anymore. That even those who chose not to take psychedelics in college generally had friends who did. And most of those friends turned out pretty decently. You know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. They're not on back wards drooling somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? In fact, some of them are highly creative, intelligent people. You know? Yes. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I mean, the, some of the uh, success in Silicon Valley, for example, is attributed to psychedelic insights. Mm -hmm. and, and so on, that it, it can facilitate creativity if you go about it right. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Definitely. So it's a whole different uh, framework of understanding. And the FDA itself uh, is very what, respectful, intelligent. You know, they're responsible for the mental health of the nation. And they don't want to approve something that's going to cause a lot of uh, damage or suffering, you know? Yeah. But if this is really uh, one of the best treatments for depression and post-traumatic stress and addictions, 
wow, what would the world be like if less people were depressed and addicted, you know? Uh, yeah. about significantly impacting the mental health of the world, you know? Yeah, it would change the world. It would change the change. climate of how we see Earth and how we see ourselves. And yeah, it can just be a, the huge catalyst to creating essentially uh, heaven on Earth, you know? I know that sounds really idealistic, but that's... Yeah, that's the ideal that we need to, you know, to create that better world, to create that heaven on earth. And it starts with, you know, reaching these states of psychedelic experiences or transcendental and mystical experiences and seeing us for what we really are. Yeah. And, and it entails not only respect for one another in our different religions and languages and heritages, really valuing diversity, you know, in yeah. all its forms. Um, but it also fosters our relationship with nature, you know, other life forms uh, from the tree to the octopus. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> They're pretty incredible, you know, with, <laughs> into them, you know? Yeah. yeah. And uh, the idea of kind of living harmoniously, sharing, being respectful to the other life forms on the planet instead of just exploiting them for our financial gain or whatever, you know? Mm -hmm. um, that makes sense. It has meaning. Yes. After a profound psychedelic experiences. Mm. I'm glad you said that because that's kind of what it, that's kind of what it gives me at least, uh, or gave me, it was like a sense of purpose, a sense of meaning to my own life uh and yeah that I, I feel like that is the perfect word for it it's it's meaning like this it's it gave me like this sense to like want to keep going on because i was actually at a point where i was pretty depressed and i just didn't see like the light and then uh, i kind of like you know reorganized how i saw my entire life and it, it gave me this sense of uh just wanting to live really it's great. How come we need you here? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, here I am. <laughs> oh, man. You really are, you know? Oh, man. That's good. Um, Thanks. <laughs> um, well, uh, I mean, other than that, I mean, uh, do you, I think we can probably wrap this thing up. Do you have anything else you'd like to get off your chest or anything you'd like to say or? Oh, I can talk on forever. Um, <laughs> I don't really have any other questions for you. I do like to say one thing, though. I, I, the, uh, the Hold on, I have it on my phone. It's the list. The, the common noetic insights in mystical consciousness, the six insights that you have. Is that your list? Um, Want me to read them off first? The, the, the definition of mystical consciousness and in the scientific world, that has become a scientific term, mystical consciousness. Yeah. You know, in professional journals now, this isn't, a, it's not misty, it's not vague. It, mm. it, this is a rather precise thing. And what we call mystical consciousness is a state of awareness that includes a sense of unity transcendence of time and space, intuitive knowledge, sacredness or awesomeness, 
deeply felt positive mood, joy, peace, love, and planes of ineffability and paradoxicality. Mm -hmm. And when a person's report of a session or a questionnaire completed afterwards scores high on those six uh, categories, then we say that person had a mystical experience. I see. Or we might say was had by a mystical experience. <laughs> <laughs> yes. You know, but it mm -hmm. happened. It's in that person's memory. Yeah. And then the amazing thing in the research world is that we're finding that when that happens, there's often the most dramatic changes in uh, behavior and attitudes afterwards. Mm. Decreases in depression, anxiety. Cancer patients claim to have lost their fear of death. But interestingly enough, they don't get suicidal. Yes. They, they treasure every minute they have. But mm -hmm. they start to approach the end of their lives more with curiosity than with fear. Mm. You know, that's a pretty incredible change in our culture. That, I think that's probably the biggest thing that you could get from these things is, I mean, who doesn't want that to not fear our inevitable demise? You know, it's what more do you, we're all going to die. So, I mean, if you can kind of come to some kind of semblance of peace, then what more can you ask for? <laughs> right. I'm fond of saying, in fact, in my book, there's uh, 13 uh, suggestions to ponder at the end. Yeah, uh, I, I love those. <laughs> But if I were to publish another version of the book, there'd be a number 14. Mm -hmm. It would be just because you're mortal is no reason to be depressed. <laughs> mm. It's okay. true. Yeah, most of us are mortal, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, individually, we're mortal, but collectively, at a deeper level, we are immortal. I like to see it. Or there really is a, a temporal world in which we're involved in daily life. And there is an eternal world that mm. we can access, awaken to, you know? And I, I think being awakening, being developing spiritually is maintaining awareness of both of those worlds. Mm. And uh, yeah, and the dialogue and the interactions between them, you know, yeah, there is the eternal world of eternal love, and there is suffering in the marketplace where we can go and feed hungry people. Okay, mm -hmm. mm. if you can remember both of those at one time, you got it made. <laughs> That's great. I think we can end it on that point. That's awesome. Okay. Uh, Dr. William Richards, you're one of the good guys. Thank you for coming on. I really appreciate it. Um, yeah, if anyone wants to check it out, I got the book right here, Sacred Knowledge. Wonderful book. It's definitely up there in uh, in psychedelic literature. That's for, for sure. Um, but yeah, I, I keep doing, doing your thing. Uh, keep fighting the good fight. I really appreciate you giving me the time. And uh, I hope you enjoy the rest of your day. Enjoy the holidays and, you know, you too, Gary. Take That's care. It. Yeah. Namaste. Have Namaste. a good one. <laughs>